Have you ever seen video of astronauts playing with water on the International Space Station? They're extremely careful with it. To move liquids in space is tricky. And if you can do it in a way where there's no moving parts, that can be very desirable. On this episode of the American Scientist podcast, controlling fluid without any moving parts. The innovation could be useful for all kinds of applications, not just in space, but here on Earth too. I'm Fenella Saunders. Pour a liquid into a container and it takes the shape of the container. Pour water into a pipe full of holes and it would spill out, right? Well, it turns out that if the holes are small enough, the liquid stays in the pipe. That's because of the liquid's surface tension. It's the force of attraction between the molecules at the surface of the liquid. So, for example, because of surface tension, you can carefully place a paper clip so that it will sit on the surface of water. The paper clip is not floating. Push the paper clip below the water surface and it will sink because gravity takes over. So, in the case of these pipes with tiny holes, there's enough surface tension to keep the liquid from spilling out of the pipe. And these pipes can even transport fluid up against gravity. We're kind of really close to that balance where surface tension and gravity match each other. That's Joshua Daat, Josh, a biomedical engineer. Earlier in the show, you heard Nikola Dudakovic, Nick, a chemical engineer. Here's the full clip of what Nick said. To move liquids in space, is tricky. And if you can do it in a way where there's no moving parts, where you can actually control it with just surface tension driven phenomena, that can be very desirable. Turns out that these tiny holes, along with other tiny structures, can be used to control the flow of liquid in any direction. To learn more, I spoke with Josh, Nick, as well as Erica Fong and Eric Duos. They all work at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory about the three-dimensional structures they and their teammates built. One even looks like a tree. Now, part of the innovation here is the engineering itself. It's the capacity to print three-dimensional structures that are big enough that you can hold them in your hand, but with details such as tiny holes that are as small as a cell. So I started the interview by asking what prompted the researchers to try to move liquids through pipes with holes in them in the first place. Here's our interview, which has been edited for length and clarity. So at Lawrence Livermore, we've been working in an area called micro-architected materials. Eric, go ahead. And these tend to be sort of lattice-type structures with micro-scale features. And we started an effort specifically on creating reactors that can convert carbon dioxide to value-added feedstocks or chemicals or fuels. Uh, that's a sort of complex multi-phase reaction. To do that, we said, hmm, it would be good if we could structure the liquid and the gases to control things like transport distances. And that inspired us to borrow from our prior work in microarchitecture materials and now apply that to this new concept that we call cellular fluidics. So cellular meaning unit cell-based structure. So something that has kind of a fundamental building block it can be periodic. Fluidics meaning both delivery and, and control of transport and, and structuring of liquids and gases. Is the advance here 
precise 3D printing that lets you create these open structures at these tiny scales, and then you can print these sort of larger whole networks with them? Yeah, that's certainly the rapid advancement of 3D printing out of manufacturing. The ability to produce structures with micro and nanoscale features over large volumes, like you alluded to, is new and it's growing in terms of capability there. So that's one of the fundamental sort of enabling technologies that we've leveraged for the cellular fluidics platform. And what we're trying to do now is marry that with emerging computational design methods. So now can you marry the geometric complexity and flexibility that these new 3D printing methods afford one with new computational design methods that can generate optimized structures for a given purpose? So the, the, the time is right in that respect, both from a physical capability, but also sort of a computational capability. It sounds like this is pretty specialized machinery at this point. So is it something that you can actually sort of scale up production with? I think one of the things that we're doing is forecasting. There's a trend and somewhat soon there's going to be commercially available technologies that can do what's needed for cellular fluidics to realize its full potential. Can someone on your team describe the actual manufacturing process? Sure. It's, um, I'll turn it over to Nick. Yep. Nick? Yeah. So with this uh, custom system that we have built at Lawrence Livermore. Uh, You're laser curing resin, but. So it's not necessarily a laser, but rather a digital projector that projects a very tightly focused pattern of light. And uh, wherever you project that light, your liquid polymer will will cross-link and become solid. And so this pattern is relatively small. It's it's about a centimeter by a centimeter, but then you have these moving Galvo mirrors that could essentially scan that pattern across a much larger surface. So you get the benefit of both being able to, to go large in the build area, but also be very tightly focused and have very, very fine resolution on the scale of tens of microns. So is that when you're talking about having the the image projector going layer by layer. Are you building this up in layers, putting material down a layer at a time, or is it more like laser sintering where you have like a a big tub and then you're kind of projecting at different layers within it to solidify? It's more like the latter that you mentioned. So in this case, you have a bath of a photopolymer specifically. And and yeah, so you, you essentially start at, in this case, at the surface of the liquid bath project onto your substrate and then you lower the substrate more liquid flows over you cure you pattern the next layer and 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 you repeat that until the the part is complete so i'd also like to talk about the actual internal structure in these cells that you've created it sounds like from your paper you were sort of experimenting yeah so you're absolutely right we tried different unit cell designs and these are actually relatively commonly used in in the field of architected materials for mechanical properties, as Eric mentioned before. And so those are easily available from a design perspective, creating that initial three-dimensional file that that is then to be printed. So we kind of used that library to begin with, and it quickly became obvious once we started taking some of these high-speed videos, the shape, kind of a pyramid shape, fills first. And it's because as the liquid's moving up that pyramid, that cross-section is, if you can imagine it as a, as a single pore, you're essentially decreasing the pore size. And the lower the pore size, the higher the capillary action. And so it, it goes up and fills up 
that pyramid very quickly. And then if you have that repeated motif throughout the structure, that really helps. And Josh's simulations also showed that in a more quantitative fashion where we really saw the liquid kind of speeding up and slowing down depending on where it was in the structure. Josh, did you want to elaborate on that a little bit in terms of the actual fluid flow that you're seeing because of the pyramidal structure and how those two things are connected? Yeah, sure. So the pyramidal structure actually somewhat accelerates the fluid. So at the bottom where the struts are far apart, you're basically force per unit area is lower. And so as it approaches the apex of that pyramid, it accelerates. In some of the other designs we looked at, didn't have that acceleration type feature. And so the flow tended to kind of stagnate and get stuck at points. So using this periodic structure allows us to kind of accelerate the fluid up and, and kind of keep things moving because we're kind of really close to that balance where surface tension and gravity match each other. And is there a, a difference that happens when you are having a whole lattice versus a single tube? So on the simulation side, Josh, please go ahead. The impact between unit cells is important, there's kind of two components. One of them is where you are relative to your reference frame, so gravity basically. So the higher you go, the more likely you are to, to stop flow, that, that gravity balances. The other component is how does the fluid move between the unit cells? And this is an effect that we kind of noticed when trying to validate some of the simulations and what we're trying to better understand now, but the initial conditions as the fluid contacts that unit cell governs how the fluid propagates through the remainder of the unit cell. In most of the work we did, we focused on just single vertical rise. But in some of the later figures, we looked at you know branching pathways. So what if you have lateral flow? And so that behavior of, it's not just simply, you can't just simply look at the, the architecture and say, oh, here's where the fluid will go because it's dependent on the time history of the fluid in the lattice. So they're all tightly linked together, which makes simulation a little challenging in this case. Eric? If Erica wants to weigh in on the, on the experiments. <laughs> Erica, please go ahead. Uh, so in the experiments, we also see a difference where for a single stack of cells, you might not see as much rise as when you have a two by two or four by four unit uh, group together where you can, where the capillary rise in each adjacent, adjacent cell helps the entire structure fill with fluid. Is there a reason for the wider array causing that change? So like in the cells that Josh simulated where we have this kind of periodic boundary onto mimic an uh, endless basically array, you have the alternating pyramids essentially. It allows it to rise farther, does that make sense? So one other piece of the work that you, I, I, as I understood from the paper is that you're actually altering the structural width to control the flow direction. Is that correct? Are you talking about the structures where we have the design flow paths with yeah. the, yeah. Mm -hmm. So that allows us to kind of control the tendency for the fluid to prefer different cells. So the cells with larger beams have a smaller, essentially pore size. So the fluid would prefer to go into those cells as opposed to the other cells. So when we start injecting a fluid into our structure, it will actually prefer to go along that defined flow path. And that's how we control the flow. You're able to control it during the actual manufacturing process. You can yes. sort of change the pore size and the yes. strut size as you go along. Great. So, I mean, it's kind of like if you imagine just a normal microfluidic device where you have a specific channel, except now we're defining that channel with the smaller pore size. So we have a completely open structure with these open walls, but we can still define where the fluid goes in our device. Another thing that seemed to come up later in your paper 
it sounds like you have the ability to combine multiple materials in one structure. So yeah, you, you've rightfully noted that right. we can do multi-material structures and it, it's an interesting approach because people have been working on with these 3D printing methods that Nick described. People have been trying to be able to print multiple materials in a single structure for a while. And there are challenges, inherent challenges to the 3D printing processes themselves to be able to do that, but you can create multi-material structures through post-processing methods, one of which could be leveraging the cellular fluidics phenomena. So it occurred to us that since we can selectively infiltrate with liquid in certain paths, we could introduce a reactive material or a catalyst selectively into the 3D lattice structure. And by doing that, then that specific selected surface now is sensitized, if you will. And then upon introducing it to, for example, an electroless metal plating bath, metal will only deposit where we've priorly put down the catalyst. So that's kind of neat. So we can create selectively metallized structures. You can then go and electro deposit a metal of your choice. And so that can create an anode and a cathode, which is akin to you know, an electrochemical cell, which could be used for energy storage, a battery, but it can also be used for electrochemistry at large. So electrochemical reactors and, and yeah, our focus is converting CO2 into value-added products. Yeah. And you mentioned converting CO2 from manufacturing. Are you also looking at this in terms of things like pollution control? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. I don't want to put Erica on the spot, but yeah, Erica and, and Josh are looking at Cellular Fluidics is a collection platform, then a sort of sample preparation platform, and then a detection platform. And we were inspired by COVID there because, uh, you know, can people detect viruses and so forth? And as you noted, pollution, things in the environment, you know, that are in, in, in the atmosphere and are in gas phase. So I'll, I'll turn it over to, to Erica to talk a little bit about that work. That's definitely something that we've been interested in and been chatting with different colleagues about the opportunity to introduce this new type of material, right, with all this controllable air-liquid interfaces. And now I, I think it will be challenging to compete directly with some of the filters where you have this incredibly high surface area based on these very tiny fibers. But now we have the opportunity to really control the liquid phase and potentially be able to look at pollen, pollutants, aerosols, whatever you're looking for into the liquid phase in a completely different method than we've seen in the past. So it's definitely something that I think there's a lot of interest in and a lot of work to be done in a completely, you know, relatively new and just different way of thinking about filtration. So we're really excited to start looking into that. So there were a lot of different applications that have been kind of mentioned in connection with this research you know, lab on a chip applications, everything from that to growing seeds in space, anything that you'd want to emphasize? Yeah, so something that I got really interested in is using the cellular fluids kind of as a bridge between micro, traditional closed microfluidics and a lot of the liquid handling robots and these open plate platforms for biology. I think that this is an opportunity to kind of marry those two technologies as well as when we're getting to these, you know, very high number of screens and very tiny plates with very, very small liquid volumes, 
I think the cellular fluids can really excel there in being able to handle fluids and really use the surface tension, use how it's sticking to the plate as a feature as opposed to a challenge. As for doing things in space and in microgravity, we got really interested in this and to move liquids in space is tricky. And if you can do it in a way where there's no moving parts, where you can actually control it with just surface tension driven phenomena, that can be very desirable. And, you know, if you just kind of Google fluids, NASA (laughs) space, you'll get all these interesting things of how fuel is being transported or like the sipping cups for astronauts (laughs) and then everything in between. And so what we are hoping is that all of these design rules that were establishing for the structures that we're printing can be relatively easily extrapolated to something that works in microgravity and that we can really take advantage of being able to design these structures to work specifically in those conditions. Well, thank you everybody for your time. It's really fascinating work. And thank you for your interest. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. That was Eric Duas, Joshua Daat, Erica Fong, and Nikola Dudukovic speaking with me about controlling the flow of liquids in three-dimensional structures using surface tension. Read my article and see pictures of these structures in the March-April 2022 issue of American Scientist. Online, find also links and a video of how these structures work. The article is titled Open Flow and is freely available on our website at www.americanscientist.org. You've been listening to a podcast from American Scientist Magazine, published by Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Honor Society. This podcast was edited and produced by Robert Frederick. I'm Fenella Saunders. Thanks for joining us.